0: This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org.
1: I have a student's prayer from St. Thomas Aquinas that I like to start my classes with. And uh, you, uh, you guys can all hear me okay? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Ineffable Creator, true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of our minds. Disperse from our souls the twofold darkness into which we were born, sin and ignorance. Grant to us keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of our work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, I'm still catching my breath. I've been traveling all day and traveling in the kind of hurry up and wait, standing in lines or just sitting in in an airplane or in a car. Um, Before I get started with the formal talk, I have a written lecture that I'm going to read to you, and I I think that feels a little unfriendly sometimes. Uh, But I'm hoping that we have conversation afterwards. Um, And I would also like to get a sense of my audience. I mean, Jack gave me a sense of what he would like to hear for a lecture. Um, How how many people, I mean, I I, I love meeting a group of students who um, come out because they're interested in something to do with the Catholic intellectual tradition, presumably, something to do maybe with Thomas Aquinas. Um, How many of you have taken an undergraduate ethics class? Few of you. Um, did Did your ethics class have a unit on virtue And then maybe you talked about utilitarianism or Kantianism or something like that. Okay, this is useful for me to to know that some of you have had that. And some of you haven't, that's okay. Um, How many of you have felt like either in your ethics class or in some other um, sort of formal uh, part of university life, you've had a, a chance to inquire deeply about the things that matter most to you? Your typical classes involve sort of, profound inquiry into the truth of human life. We've got, I, got, I got a hand. I pushed hard enough, and I got one hand. OK, well, this, this is useful to me. Um, thank you for your patience. Um, I'm going to read this. It's, it's recorded as a podcast. Uh, the Thomistic Institute likes to post all of these. Um, and, and so uh, what I read, I think will take about 40 minutes. Is that all right? Um, And I know we're already late, so if if some of you have something to do, I won't be offended if you walk out on me. Um, But I'm also hoping that after I'm done reading this, we have a chance to talk. The title of this talk is, Is Virtue Enough? The Contortions of Ethics Without God. And I've given it in my head a kind of secret sub-subtitle, McIntyre's Service to Theology. The latter half of the 20th century saw fresh interest in Aristotelian ethics. One aspect of this renewal is hope for reform not only within the field of moral philosophy, but for academic inquiry in general and for the wider culture. This has been a central hope of Alistair MacIntyre, especially in his most famous work, After Virtue, and in subsequent developments of the argument he laid out there. This is the background for the question I propose to explore reflected in my title. Whether ethical reflection that excludes any reference to to divinity, that is, ethics without God, can succeed in its task. But even before formulating, even, even formulating this question raises a further question. The question of what the task of ethics is. R.G. Collingwood pointed out that Plato's Republic and Hobbes' Leviathan are not different attempts to answer the same question. Part of accounting for their different ideas about justice requires us to recognize that they develop their ideas in different social contexts and in order to address different intellectual problems. McIntyre took this insight from Collingwood to heart and helped us to see that this question, what kind of problem is an ethical theory designed to solve, requires careful attention to historical circumstance. So my strategy cannot be to assume that we know what ethical theories in general are supposed to do and then review atheistic theories to show that and why they fail. Nor is it sufficient to assert the more direct and obvious point that moral laws only make sense if there is a lawgiver. Elizabeth Anscombe made that point in the article that's often taken as foundational for the 20th century virtue ethics revival, Modern Moral Philosophy, published in 1958. It was part of her strategy for reviving Aristotelian ethics to propose that Aristotle's emphasis on virtue is advantageous for being more consistently atheistic than other ethical theories that depend on vestigial theistic concepts such as law or obligation. McIntyre's After Virtue followed this lead. While he acknowledged that virtue has thrived in theistic contexts, he self-consciously argued in and for a secular, functionally atheistic context for a creative construal of virtue independent of theological commitment. One implication of my argument is that this foundational strategy of the modern Aristotelian revival, advancing virtue as a more consistent strategy for ethics without God, is deeply paradoxical. If other ethical theories become contorted without God, then it was an ironic, though perhaps strategic, contortion of Aristotle to propose (coughs) virtue ethics without God. What we actually find thanks to a closer reading of MacIntyre and of Aristotle, is that a renewal of Aristotelian ethics through the path of virtue turns us back inescapably to reflection about divinity. (laughs) This is precisely why the Aristotelian revival as MacIntyre would see it, has the capacity to reframe not only the task of moral philosophy, but the task of theology as well, and to renew the social function of both philosophy and theology. MacIntyre's Aristotelian project is a service to theology and to the church. To defend this claim, and so that we may share some background for this argument, I will begin by offering a summary or an attempted summary, necessarily inadequate, of after virtue. So this is the first and longest section of the talk. I hope those of you who have read After Virtue will recognize what I say, and I hope those of you who haven't will find here enough to follow why McIntyre has been important. McIntyre famously begins with a disquieting suggestion based on the analogy of a science fiction scenario in which a catastrophe renders unintelligible a cultural practice in such a way that its unintelligibility isn't even noticeable to the people who are going through the motions. Of continuing it. McIntyre seems to have had in mind Walter Miller's novel, A Canticle for Leibowitz*, in which a nuclear holocaust has destroyed much of civilization, including the practice of science, but a community of monks works with fragments of scientific textbooks and scientific instruments without fully realizing that what they are doing with them isn't really science. McIntyre's suggestion is that this is our situation with ethics, that our inherited moral language belonged to a project now lost due to some catastrophe that we aren't even fully aware of. Pieces of the past cultural practice, fragments of moral language no longer entirely coherent on their own, survive. People continue to use these fragments, but without realizing that they are no longer engaged in the former project and what is most disturbing, without the resources for even discerning what they have lost. To help us imagine that this might actually be our situation, McIntyre focuses for the first half of After Virtue on the character of moral discourse in modernity. In the second chapter, he points out that in everyday experience, say arguing about social policies, moral disagreements are articulated in conceptually incommensurable terms. People defending different views about, say, abortion or war or wealth distribution might appeal to things like rights or equality or liberty or fairness. Today, we might add tolerance or equity, all of which concepts used within the context of a relevant argument seem perfectly coherent and suggest a kind of impersonal authority But in light of conflicting sets of concepts, say rights of property versus injustice of inequality, these arguments not only typically fail to persuade, they are literally incommensurable with each other. No one can win out over the other, they can't really be compared. As a result, even earnest attempts at objectivity give the impression that argument is not about reasoning, but about manipulation, or the imposition of a self-interested will. It is no wonder, then, that people find appealing theories that reduce moral arguments to power struggles in the form of Nietzsche's postmodern will to power or the Marxist existentialist post-liberal critique of bourgeois morality as bad faith, rationalizing self-interest. McIntyre, sympathetic to and influenced by both Nietzsche and Marx, prefers to call this phenomenon emotivism. The view that moral utterances, even though they purport to give reasons, are really just expressions of feelings. Thus, in the third chapter, he explores how, while emotivism fails theoretically as a genuine account of moral concepts, it makes very good sense as a kind of sociological account of how people experience the deployment of moral language. When moral, concepts seem essentially, moral arguments seem essentially interminable, irresolvable because they use incommensurable concepts, then all attempts at moral persuasion cannot help but feel manipulative. Chances are you recognize this in particular examples when you've had arguments with other people and you you realize that there's just no way for one person's set of concepts to win out over another, which makes you very suspicious of why people are picking the concepts that they have unless it's just to justify their own self-interest. Emotivism is a late-stage development in modernity, and in chapters 4 and 5, McIntyre characterizes the predecessor culture, which he calls the Enlightenment Project of Justifying Morality. It's a matter of cultural history that the idea of a sphere of the moral, consisting of rules of conduct which are neither theological nor legal, emerged in the early modern period, and this led to a search for a rational justification of these rules— The natural place to look was in some aspect of human nature, in the fact of our ability to choose, in our power of reason, in the the nature of our desires. The point was to justify or find a basis for moral rules in something other than the idea of human perfection or happiness, and something other than divine command. Here, McIntyre offers a summary history, hardly meant to be exhaustive highlighting key figures who illustrate different executions of this strategy, Kierkegaard, Kant, and Hume, who all in their own way looked for a way to preserve essential parts of the content of traditional religious ethics. They all, for instance, maintain a vestigial consensus for rules about promise-keeping and truth-telling and faithfulness in marriage, but they sought to justify these rules without appeal to religion. Here's McIntyre. In a world of secular rationality, religion could no longer provide such a shared background and foundation for moral discourse and action. And the failure of philosophy to provide what religion could no longer furnish was an important cause of philosophy losing its central cultural role and becoming a marginal, narrowly academic subject. As McIntyre argues in one of the crucial chapters of After Virtue, The Enlightenment project of justifying morality failed and had to fail. As McIntyre put it, the rules this project tried to justify had previously made sense as mediating the transition from human nature as it happens to be to human nature as it could be if it realized its essential nature. The rules implied a teleological conception of man. To the extent that the Enlightenment project rejected this conception and considered only man as he is, not man as he could be if he realized his telos, the rules no longer made sense. Indeed, they were dismembered pieces of a different conceptual framework, rendered incoherent in the new non-teleological context. Moral rules separated from the telos became As MacIntyre called them, incoherent fragments of a once coherent scheme of thought and action, and since they did not recognize their own peculiar historical and cultural situation, they, the philosophers, could not recognize the impossible and quixotic character of their self-appointed task. While MacIntyre recognizes that the theological understanding of human nature was formerly rooted in a, sorry, the teleological understanding of human nature was formerly rooted in a combination of metaphysics and religion. The challenge he sets for himself in the rest of After Virtue is to make it possible to conceive of a telos in a non-metaphysical manner, as something rooted in our social condition. According to McIntyre, the key cultural fact was that before the Enlightenment, man was a functional concept. In other words, To be a human being is to fulfill a set of roles within a family, a polity, in relation to crafts and relationships as part of the cosmos. So McIntyre argues that the Enlightenment project not only happened to fail, but had to fail because it replaced the teleological notion of the human being as perfectible in light of these roles with the notion of the autonomous individual, conceivable without those roles and without any intrinsic telos or purpose other than the exercise of its will. McIntyre proceeds in Chapter 6 to describe the consequences of this failure, primarily the emergence of new moral language that is meant to take up the slack. His focus is on the notion of utility and rights, which he calls moral fictions, historically contrived and contingent ideas that we use as if they have clear moral meaning, but which arose to play a role in moral discourse only because of the failure of the Enlightenment project to salvage moral rules without teleology. In addition to utilitarianism and liberalism, McIntyre also thinks that the context for the emergence this this is the context for the emergence of emotivism which is important as a cultural phenomenon and Uh, which is as important as a cultural phenomenon as a moral theory as evident in what McIntyre identifies as the characteristic types of the modern agent, the asthete who cares only for himself, the therapist who seeks to manipulate others, and the bureaucratic manager who considers means without evaluating ends. This dynamic of individuals free to make choices without regard for purposes also accounts for the strange authority of managerial expertise and the widespread myth that facts are separated from values. In a teleological view of the human condition, evaluative judgments can be true. After teleology, values express private will and are something radically distinct from public empirical facts. In the seventh and eighth chapters, MacIntyre thus turns to a critique of positivism and the flaws of the new style of inquiry into human dynamics, social science, a 19th century invention, as founded on positivist assumptions about human nature. Halfway through after virtue, in chapter nine, MacIntyre distills the first iteration of his central thesis. Given the failure of the Enlightenment project and the flaws of liberalism, utilitarianism, and any other account of human action based on positivism, it is clear that there is really only one choice. Embrace a teleological view of human beings or utterly reject it, and with it, morality. Only Nietzsche's prophetic irrationalism exposes the genuine vacuity of moral language once Aristotle is abandoned. The two options, then, and the title of this chapter is Aristotle or Nietzsche. But how to choose? Nietzsche didn't defeat Aristotle. Nietzsche's view is only defensible if it was right to reject Aristotle. But was it right? Exploring this question makes up the second half of the book, which offers a history of the idea of virtues. Aristotle plays not the only, but a central role. In chapter 10, MacIntyre attends to the virtues in heroic societies, giving special attention to the Iliad. And in chapter 11, the virtues at Athens. He covers the Sophists, Plato, and Tragedians, especially Sophocles. In chapter 12, Aristotle's account of the virtues, MacIntyre argues that for Aristotle, the notion of virtue and law are essentially connected. Both defined the goods of the community, and virtue is needed to apply the law in the form of the virtue of good judgment, phrenesis, prudence. McIntyre is working here to do several things. He shows how the idea of virtue is linked to the idea of moral law, and he portrays Aristotle as refining the poetic, mythic, tragic, and philosophical traditions that preceded him. But also in this chapter, McIntyre is eager to start the argument that one can have teleology without Aristotle's particular metaphysical commitments. In the next chapter, Medieval Aspects and Occasions, as with the chapter on Enlightenment, MacIntyre does not pretend to offer an exhaustive history, but only takes up representative thinkers. Aquinas, perhaps surprisingly, is a marginal figure here. MacIntyre gives more attention to Abelard, the influence of Stoicism, Allen of Lille, and St. Augustine. The historical explorations of chapters 10 through 13 then lead, over the next three chapters, 14 through 16, to McIntyre's articulation of social teleology to replace Aristotle's metaphysical biology. As a creative theoretical contribution, this is perhaps the most original part of after virtue, articulating virtue in terms of practice, narrative, and tradition. The upshot is that one must be able to conceive of actions within the context of social roles, related to other social roles, with a past and projected into the future. So that rational justification for action depends on the agent conceiving of the unity of a human life McIntyre wants his readers to ask and to answer yes to this question, and I quote, Is it rationally justifiable to conceive of each human life as a unity, so that we may try to specify each such life as having its good, and so that we may understand the virtues as having their function in enabling an individual to make of his or her life one kind of unity rather than another? So McIntyre argues that human actions are not intelligible apart from a narrative history. In effect, he is getting at traditional Thomistic action theory, but replacing metaphysical anthropology with a literary sense of the intelligibility of a character. In the 16th chapter, McIntyre draws on various cultural critics, such as Marx and Cobbett and Polanyi, to argue that modernity makes it hard for people to have a conception of narrative unity, and practice. Jane Austen emerges here as someone who managed to renovate virtues in light of the disorienting effects of modernity. And Marx is also vindicated, not ideologically, but sociologically, in chapter 17, where MacIntyre criticizes the dominant strains of liberalism, left and right, with a chapter dedicated to Rawls and Nozick. Marx was fundamentally right, said MacIntyre, in seeing conflict and not consensus at the heart of modern social structures. The final chapter of After Virtue thus offers an important revision of his intermediate conclusion. MacIntyre has outnarrated Nietzsche. Nietzsche's polemic works against attempts to rationalize rules, but it does not work against virtue so long as virtue can be reconceived for the culture of advanced modernity. The choice is no longer between Nietzsche and Aristotle then, but between Nietzsche on the one hand, and Aristotle, Trotsky, and Saint Benedict on the other. Why these are additional too? Aristotle's approach needs to be updated for post-industrial modernity to accommodate the circumstances of social life under modern arrangements of power. So a sober Marxist critique is useful but without naive Marxist optimism about salvation through politics. Hence, Trotsky. But some hope is appropriate. Insofar as we can, within the context of modernity, imagine, in a famous line, the construction of local forms of community within which civility and the intellectual and moral life can be sustained. Hence, St. Benedict. In summarizing After Virtue, I have wanted to convey the ambitious scope and high stakes of its argument. The object of MacIntyre's criticism is not simply one or another inadequate moral theory, but the whole modern condition of thinking about human life. And the reform he proposes is no less significant than the preservation of humane culture against barbarism. So you can imagine that it would seem a very small victory not even a symbolic one, and perhaps a pyrrhic one, for virtue ethics to appear on your syllabus in ethics class as a unit competing with utilitarianism and Kantianism, as it so often does. In the terminology of David Solomon, McIntyre proposed a return to virtue as something radical that would overturn our practices, but academics have domesticated it as something routine, another theory to be taught alongside the others, the incommensurability of which implicitly entrenches the very emotivism that MacIntyre sought to defeat. MacIntyre's radical intention was to use the concept of virtue to rethink how we evaluate actions, which means rethinking the assumptions we are making about what a moral theory does and what kinds of questions it answers, and so even reconceiving how we teach ethics and how it is related to other subjects in the university and to everyday decisions. True success in introducing the concept of virtue for MacIntyre would mean recovering a teleological conception of human life, If things had been different, in fact, what we call virtue ethics might have been called teleological ethics or eudaimonistic ethics for the Greek word for happiness. It could have been called natural law ethics in its account of dignity and a sense of self-worth and the traditional ethical attention to duty and shame. It could have even been called honor ethics as oriented to an ultimate good. It could have been called summum bonum ethics. Especially as a response to Nietzsche, who unmasked the fruitlessness of ethics after the death of God, virtue ethics could have even been called theological ethics. After virtue connects the loss of teleology with the decline of theological authority. He is not specific about the devastating catastrophe that began modernity, but it is clearly related to the changing status of religion in society. What after virtue implicitly acknowledges, but does not highlight, is that pre-modern ethical reflection was always about how human happiness is related to the divine. Discourse about God or gods did not always take the same shape and was not always emphasized in the same way and found different points of contact with discussion of human flourishing, but it was always present. Gods might reward or punish. They might be models of behavior, or sources of debt or obligation, or authors of laws. They might assist or inspire. They might subject us to a capricious fate. They might endow us with distinctive powers, or measure and judge us. We might be condemned to remain tragically distant from the divine, or have hope for profound communion. But in some way or other, Reference to divinity helps secure the features that MacIntyre identified in a supposedly agnostic or atheist concept of virtue. It was part of the narrative unity of life and one which was not merely a subjective invention. Conceiving life in relation to the gods provided the implicit epistemology of pre-modern culture with its characteristic thoroughgoing realism Asserting an essential connection between pre modern moral and theological reflection is not to suggest that pre modern ethics depended on any one fully articulated theology. The point is that inquiry about human happiness was a primary locus for theological reflection, and an openness to the theological horizon of thought provided the framework for the intelligibility of moral inquiry. Nor does the essential connection between moral and theological questions imply that pre-modern ethics was characterized by simplistic unanimity or by lack of dispute. Disagreement about the evaluation of action and about the character of divinity was, of course, common. What is salient is that such disagreement could be made intelligible as disagreement and fruitfully rationally negotiated in light of a generally acknowledged connection between moral and theological questions. How one conceived of divinity would shape one's conception of how to live, and how one thought about human nature and destiny in turn informed one's conception of the divine. Aquinas's Summa Theologiae is a useful artifact here, undoubtedly a theological work, but organized around the consideration of human beings having their beginning and end in God, a work which modern readers are tempted to view as a kind of academic encyclopedia of doctrine, but whose primary catalyst in historical context was the need for integrated moral formation. And Aquinas's method in the work is to embrace fully the role of dialectical confrontation and argument in rational inquiry. His questio format, a literary incarnation of the medieval university classroom's disputation, makes conspicuous and essential to the text the role of confronting and working through disagreement, the negotiation of disparate sources and authorities and conflicting voices in order to arrive at the truth. A third clarification is that the ethics theology link is not found in philosophers only. The connection between moral and theological reflection is a thread that Greek philosophy picked up from Homeric epic and Greek tragedy, and from local customs of civic piety. The first philosophers did not seek to overcome this connection so much as to clarify, discipline, and purify it. And of course, the link between theology and ethics is conspicuous in Jewish religion. It was only natural for Christian theologians like St. Thomas to carry this forward, while open to learning from pagan Greek philosophers. The theological dimension of medieval scholasticism, of Greek myth and of Jewish revelation is not in question. But does Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics have an inherently theological character? Aristotle first mentions God in this text in ways that might seem incidental, rhetorical flourishes or superficial pieties. He says in the very first book that it is more godlike to attain the good for the polis than for the individual. And soon after, God appears in a list of things that illustrate that many different kinds of things can be called good. But it is harder to dismiss as a less than serious question when Aristotle asks, still in the first book, whether happiness comes to us by divine dispensation. Aristotle seems willing to consider this hypothesis, and in a way not rendered entirely irrelevant by the fact that what Aristotle is aiming to arrive at is the insight that virtue is acquired. Now there is a gift, if there is any gift, says Aristotle, of the gods to men, it is reasonable that happiness should be God-given, and most surely God-given of all human things, inasmuch as it is the best." But this question, Aristotle continues, would perhaps be more appropriate to another inquiry. Happiness seems, however, even if it is not God sent, but comes as a result of virtue and some process of learning or training, to be among the most God-like of things. Much later in the work, Aristotle comes back to this point to say that even if nature contributes to happiness, nature then would be acting as a means of divine dispensation. There are other instances of Aristotle making reference to divinity. In reflecting on how we value blessedness and happiness, Aristotle names the gods as paradigms of those states. In Book 4, he describes the virtue of magnificence in reference to the gods, insofar as spending for religious purposes is honorable and public-spirited. And he subsequently describes a similar relationship with respect to the virtue of magnanimity, In Book 5, he mentions that justice is not mutable or arbitrary with the gods, and says that there is no limit to how much good the gods can enjoy. Discussing pleasure, Aristotle emphasizes that given the nature of divine activity, the gods' enjoyment must be especially pure and enduring. Another serious question that Aristotle raises in the Ethics is whether it is possible to have friendship with God. Insofar as friendship implies a degree of equality and cooperation towards a common goal, Aristotle thinks that friendship is not possible with God. So a particularly high view of divinity leads Aristotle to deny the possibility of our relating to God as an equal. It is sometimes said that Aristotle's God is impersonal, but it seems more fair to say that his God is such a transcendent person as not to be available to relationship with us a view at once pious and tragic, which Aquinas takes as confirmation of the fittingness of the miracle of the incarnation. And of course, the most important inclusion of divinity in Aristotle's ethics is the discussion of contemplation in Book 10. As rational creatures, our telos is the most perfect rational activity, and Aristotle compares this to the activity of the gods. Indeed, the gods are most happy and we are most happy when we are like gods, and we are most like gods when our activity is most like theirs. That is to say, when we are contemplating the gods. So, another tragic piety in Aristotle is the realization that the life of contemplation must be strictly beyond our natural embodied power. And yet, Aristotle says, still we must strain every nerve to try to live according to the best element in us. To take on immortality as much as possible, despite our mortality. It is little wonder that Aquinas saw this as an implicit confirmation of beatitude, the Christian belief in a supernatural happiness beyond this life. What I am trying to make plain is that Aristotle's inquiry into the nature of virtue and happiness, rendered without reference to the divine, would be as fragmentary and incomplete as other theories of ethics are without reference to virtue. The contortions of ethics without virtue were the contortions of ethics without God. A restoration of Aristotelian virtue is also of necessity a restoration of Aristotelian common good and ultimate end of law and happiness, which is to say a restoration of the theological dimension. In light of After Virtue's attempt to downplay theology and even metaphysics, all of this could sound like a criticism of MacIntyre, but I mean it as a prelude to appreciation. MacIntyre has in fact been attentive to theological questions and the need to reconceive how we ask moral questions in light of theological questions. I think we should understand his project as more than simply a strategy or theory within the field of moral philosophy and more than a conservative critique of modern culture. By practicing a particular approach to philosophizing about ethics, McIntyre has been rendering a constructive service to theology, helping it to understand itself better and to restore it to a place of privilege in society. It may help to keep in mind that the first edition of After Virtue was published in 1981. McIntyre was not a Catholic while he wrote it but he converted around the time it was published. In an essay published two years later, Moral Philosophy, What Next?, McIntyre wrote, we inhabit a culture which was at an earlier stage informed by a shared belief in a sumum bonum, an ultimate good, and that belief had classical, in particular Aristotelian as well as biblical sources. They combined to provide morality with a point and a purpose, in virtue of which the moral life could be treated as an intelligible pursuit for a rational being. But, MacIntyre continuing, when shared belief in the summum bonum is lost, the question of the point and purpose of morality also becomes one for which answers have to be invented and to which, naturally enough, rival and incompatible answers are given." Among the innovations of modernity MacIntyre identifies are a new idea of choice, separated from moral psychology, and a new idea of principles of action, separated from divine law. And so he makes explicit what some think after virtue denies, that there is no sphere of morality independent of the agent's metaphysical or theological or anti-theological view of the world, and more particularly of God and the self. The comfortable assumption, he continues, that questions about God can be put to one side at the level of moral decision, an assumption that extends well beyond moral philosophy, will have to be abandoned. The affirmation that moral reflection cannot be separated from theological reflection cannot be more clear, and McIntyre consistently returns to this theme in later work. In the postscript to the second edition of After Virtue, 1984, he ends with a section on the relationship of moral philosophy to theology, in which he admits that he downplayed the role of a biblical worldview in Aquinas' reception of Aristotle, saying that his narrative is a work in project progress that needs to be revised in that light. And he does, in fact, follow this up in later work. In 1988, he published Whose Justice, Which Rationality, which devotes considerable attention to the role of law and the Christian biblical understanding of conscience in Aquinas. McIntyre thinks a fundamental question for philosophy is how and to what extent is knowledge of God possible? Consistent with his understanding of the historical socially embodied character of reasoning, he suggests that a culture of belief is as important to acquiring certain concepts as the concepts are to advancing the culture. This insight is central to his account of Edith Stein's conversion. McIntyre admires Stein for considering the question of knowing God not primarily as one of impersonal argument, but of joining a community of inquirers. Stein, he says, asked two central and urgent questions. Of what communities should I make myself a part? And in dialogue with whom should I carry forward my thinking and my personal formation? The rationality of theological belief, according to MacIntyre, is not something that is figured out before entering into the social circumstances in which religious belief becomes intelligible. We do not, he says, begin with some adequate grasp of the concepts of knowledge and truth, and in light of these, pass judgment on whether or not we know something of God, or whether or not it is true that God exists. But rather, he says, it is from our encounters with God, and with the world, and with human beings that we learn what it is to have knowledge and what truth is. McIntyre is most explicit about philosophy's service to theology in his book, God, Philosophy, and Universities, which grew out of an undergraduate course that he taught at Notre Dame. There it is clear that philosophy must be open to theological questions and that any genuine university must have structures in place that are different from secular universities, which preclude that philosophical work. And I must mention also McIntyre's most recent book, published in 2016, Ethics in the Conflicts of Modernity. It argues in its final pages that the worldly finite ends of practical reasoners presuppose an end beyond all finite ends. Metaphysically, this is a transcendent God, but practically it at least means that the only way in this finite world that we complete and perfect our lives, I'm quoting McIntyre, is by allowing them to remain incomplete. The human being, for true fulfillment, needs not only the metaphysical reality of God, but a venue of reflection about our relation to that God. And so the book ends with these three sentences. The perfection and completion of a life consists in an agent's having persisted in moving toward and beyond the best goods of which he or she knows. So there is presupposed some further good, an object of desire beyond all particular and finite goods, a good toward which desire tends in so far as it remains unsatisfied by even the most desirable of finite goods as in good lives it does. But here the inquiries of politics and ethics end. And natural theology begins. I have tried to argue that understanding virtue apart from theological questions is as distorting as any other attempt to make sense of ethics without God. Specifically, I have tried to show that MacIntyre's vision for a revival of Aristotelian ethics is a profoundly radical critique, not only of moral discourse or the teaching of ethics, but of late modern conceptions of the self, patterns of life, and social structures. And I have tried to highlight what is not conspicuous in After Virtue, but explicit in MacIntyre's later work, that this radical vision is as much about a restoration and reinvigoration of theological as of moral reflection. It follows from all of this that we do not fully understand MacIntyre's project as an Aristotelian moral philosopher unless we see it as including a crucial service to theology and to the social structures that support the life of Christians. I have saved for my conclusion a few words about one last book of MacIntyre, his 1988 Gifford Lectures, published in 1990, as three rival versions of moral inquiry. He concludes this book with a critique of the modern university as an institution that was founded specifically to foster a certain kind of rational inquiry about how we should live, but which has over time rendered itself irrelevant, following trends rather than shaping inquiry and reflecting the incoherence of modern moral theories by systematically excluding the forms of discourse that would allow that inquiry the forms of discourse that were essential to the medieval university, interpretive lectures and participatory disputations, structures of what he calls constrained disagreement that fostered debate and sought to explore and bring into conversation sincere attempts to understand human life. Of course, these structures of constrained disagreement were fostered by expectations of decent behavior and theological commitment But modern universities have alternative systems of constraint. McIntyre suggests that therefore perhaps fundamental debate on moral and theological questions can now only be carried on outside the constraints of the conventional academic system in the waging of a kind of guerrilla warfare against that system. It strikes me that we gathered here are engaged in something like that guerrilla warfare as a collection of students and thinkers uh, organized on the ground, funded by the Dominicans as a chapter of the Thomistic Institute. McIntyre's critique of the university also includes a critique of the lecture as a form. Unlike medieval lectures, modern academic lectures tend to be performances rather than expositions of authoritative texts and invitations to ongoing dialectic. And so my fellow guerrilla warriors, it is appropriate for me to end my talk here and for us to continue our inquiry together with the help of your questions, criticisms and counterarguments. Thank you.
2: One thing McIntyre has helped me to do is see the world in what I call a new intellectual vision um, Starting with seeing the pitfalls of certain ethical theories along with this sort of nauseating feeling that we most of us have about modernity um, It reminds me a lot of Sartre's pathogen um, slime, and maybe nothingness But I guess for the non-philosophers in the room could you tell them anything that can help them to start seeing their daily lives signs of an incoherence in modernity that can push them into some sort of quest for an ultimate teleology?
1: Um, I think for me to do that would be very autobiographical, because I think everybody finds that in their own way. And I'm tempted to ask you first, like um, where you recognize that. Um, For me, part of it was uh, just a kind of disillusionment with what college was about. I mean, I went to college very naive, and I kind of believed all the things in the brochure about, you know, the noble pursuit of truth. And then I realized that a lot of other people didn't believe that, and it wasn't clear that my professors believed that. And I didn't know where to look for that. Um, That was one manifestation of it. Um, another manifestation was realizing that I knew people who um, I respected, but who had very strong um, beliefs that disagreed with mine. And some, some, I would often have friends who took two different positions, and I didn't know which side to come down on. And I couldn't, um, I, I couldn't imagine how it was that you would actually find out the truth in those areas. But I wasn't ready to give up and say, "Okay, well, there is no such thing." Um, so those are two examples of how I experienced it, especially as a college student. And I think I think um, college is a great place to 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 have this sort of gift of disillusionment. But how did you wh- where, where 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 did you experience it?
2: I would say for me, the most important thing has been my reflections, thinking about familial friendship and romantic types of love, and how that, um, between myself and my friends, that I, certain romantic relationships I've had, and between myself and my family, how that has led me toward um, meditating on Ecclesiastes, along with um, thinking about how to conceptualize love in a rigorous, but also correct way Sure. And that has helped me to see, I think, fundamentally, that the society's conception, the dominant <coughs> conception of love um, that we often experience in society is uh, quite wrongheaded, which then has forced me to kind of dig into certain texts that are foundational to the Western canon. Uh, so I think that's the no, best place to start. I think
1: that's a, that's a great example, and I could point to, to um, similar ways in which I identify with that, it's also very, very classical. Um, you know, you wouldn't know it maybe from reading most philosophy department uh, course listings, but love love, and friendship are two of the most ancient topics for philosophical reflection. Plato has several dialogues about it. Uh, a full one-fifth of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics is about friendship, um, which includes um, n- not, not as overtly, say, as like Plato's Symposium, but includes discussion of romantic love and marriage. And um, yeah, as as one is maturing as a rational agent making decisions about what to do, one of the things that you find yourself inevitably making decisions about what to do is, how am I gonna live my life with other people? How am I going to deal with the set of um, uh, natural tendencies and desires that I find in myself and that other people find um, and how, how can those be shaped into a long-term narrative of life, right? Not just, well, let's just have fun tonight and not worry about tomorrow. But let's, let's actually think about what would this look like if, if it was coherent and made larger sense and connected us to something, something greater. Um, I, I think that's a very, very common experience. So I don't, know if, I don't know if that's help if that...
2: Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly say that I think that the only context in which you can, at least I can make sense of romantic, familial, and friendly love is in the context of some sort of participatory notion where there's a um, higher good that you are pursuing in your pursuit of the other person. Yep.
1: By the way, I think that's one of the big appeals of... Um, John Paul II's so-called theology of the body, right? It's not just that it's a it's a, a in some way of articulating some otherwise maybe hard to understand Catholic rules about love and sex, um, but that it puts the question of love and sex in the context of what is it to participate in the life of God, right? Like holy cow, and that actually kind of feels right to anyone who's ever fallen in love. There's a a kind of calling there to something higher, and yet then so many modern practices of dealing with that experience fall short of that um, intuition of of a higher orientation. There were a bunch of other hands that I saw at the beginning, back of the room. I just want to
3: amplify what you were talking about already. Um, like when the after virtue came out in 81, I guess it was. I think I I was young, I couldn't I can't really say for what I was 14 years old or 13 years, but I think most people at that time when it was published considered that they lived in a like America, a a country where there was a single shared um, conception of what meant to be American or, or um, uh, certainly was vastly more common to believe that then than it is now. Um, and just the fact that he published that book then and then 40 years later it seems like it would be difficult to, to not see what he was you know speaking about in the book as having sort of unfurled over the decades yeah. kind of almost identical, you know exactly how he had described it.
1: No, the book, the book has aged very well, and the phenomena that he's describing have only intensified. I mean, if, if anything, it seems kind of quaint that, you know, his examples of moral disagreement are, like, essentially, like, legalistic arguments about, you know, pro-choice or pro-life. And, you know, like, to, if he were writing the book today, uh, you know, God forbid he should, like, cite the tone of posts on Facebook or Twitter or something like that, but yeah. um, it's, it's all shrill screeching, right, because we know we're not persuading, we're, we're simply signaling or, or rallying the forces for our side or trying to, to shame and embarrass the other side, but it's not rational inquiry yeah. it's not, it, even though we're, we're, we're serious like we think, we think it matters but we're not serious in thinking that we, we can actually share what matters with each other
3: it's weird, because it's like, you know, he was writing this third year before, like, writing or something. Like
1: <laughs> yeah. I saw a hand. Yeah.
3: Yeah,
0: so, one of your things you brought up is, I, I guess, uh, somewhat of a criticism or, or like a failure of McIntyre's thesis in a way, that, well, he wants virtue ethics to be brought back into society, but the bringing back of it has been co-opted by academics who set it alongside various other ethical theories. It's just in competition with one another. Now, do you, is your, are you saying that this represents um, the lack or a failure of virtue ethics itself as like a theory that has enough explanatory power to defeat the others, or is this a failure of like the secularization of society that there there is no there is not enough emphasis on its grounding in God or in theology for it to triumph over these
1: other theories? <laughs> Um, it's not, it's not a failure of, uh, um, Aristotelian ethics or of virtue ethics in general. I mean, by now there are many different styles and types of virtue ethics, right? Um, and many, many of them are, are things that are very much unlike what McIntyre would have, would have been calling for. Um, I mean, the reason it gets integrated into a, a course, um, without doing anything to disturb the status quo of the course is the same reason that Nietzsche gets integrated into a course without doing anything to disturb the status quo of the course. I mean, Nietzsche would be insulted or embarrassed by the fact that his aphorisms are, are you know, mass-market paperbacks that get assigned to 18-year-olds in the thousands and thousands every year. Like, he, he was calling for something very revolutionary, right? If, if you take Nietzsche truly seriously, you wouldn't have universities anymore. Or, you wouldn't, or they wouldn't be doing the things that they're doing. And McIntyre's after virtue is radical in that sense. Now, it's not that he wants to burn it all to the ground, but, but I think McIntyre would envision that if someone had the authority to restructure an institution or a department or even just an individual philosophy course, one would do something other than Just have a three-week unit on virtue ethics between your three-week unit on utilitarianism and your three-week unit on Kant, right? I mean, speaking for myself, I teach ethics every year, uh, sometimes to undergraduates, um, uh, almost every year to seminary students. And my textbook is Aristotle and I don't have a unit on utilitarianism, and I don't have a unit on comp, and I tell them at the beginning of the semester, I think I'd be wasting your time by, by treating as if it was a full-blown moral theory, mere fragments of the true moral theory. I'm gonna teach you how to think about evaluating human action. I'm gonna show you what happens if you forget, say, the role of intention, you end up with a really weird fragmented theory that looks a lot like utilitarianism. Or if you pay too much attention to intention and not to the nature of the act itself, you end up with something that looks like what's usually covered in a unit on Kantianism or deontology, right? Um, So I end up talking about how moral theorizing can go wrong, but I don't want to dignify utilitarianism and Kantianism as if they're just equal theories. Now, does that make me radical and subversive? Not particularly in my context. Um, but I do think it's, a, it's an improvement on um, the, the, the way of teaching ethics that is more common, right? Because what's the effect if you're, if you're a typical undergraduate and you, you go through your moral philosophy course and you learn, okay, here's one moral theory, here's another moral theory, here's another moral theory. Where in the course do you figure out the, how to choose which theory to use? And, and the, the, the effect of, of learning ethics that way, I think for most students, if, they, if, if, if nobody challenges them to think about it otherwise, the most common effect of teaching ethics as here's a bunch of different theories is that you make students better at rationalizing their own bad decisions, right? So if I don't want you to harm me, I will be a Kantian and I will talk about your duty. But if I wanna get away with something that feels good to me, I'll be a utilitarian and talk about my pleasure. And if I wanna sound noble and impress somebody, right, I might invoke you know, the honorable notion of virtue or something like that. But, I, but I've, 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 I've almost weakened myself and further fragmented my life by turning myself into someone who just picks up a theory as an expression of my will and, and I haven't actually learned how to think about how to make good decisions.
0: Yeah, so do you think yeah. that would uh, I guess then if this has a basis that uh, McIntyre might say that academics are the type of a bureaucratic manager. They present these various moral theories as like, oh these are just facts without any reference to their means or ends or I mean their ends in doing so. So the two sort of kind of confused because they look at things as if they're just entirely equal without reference to
1: Sort of greater end. Well, I mean, all three character types are common in academia, but all three character types are common in every um, in every part of life, right? You have you have the therapist professors, you have the athlete professors, you have the manager professors, um, and you know I'm not I'm not trying to pick on professors. Human beings are weak, and we're we're inclined to to failure, and and we are all parts of systems. That reward those kinds of behaviors, so it actually takes it takes willpower to resist that and to imagine different structures or systems right it's just a little bit subversive for me to have a different syllabus you know that 's all Aristotle all the time. It would be more subversive for me to persuade everybody in my department to teach ethics differently, although we're, all, we're actually pretty much on the same page in my department. It would be more, you know, the real radical thing would be for me to start a new university or to, to you know, uh, propose a reform, which is why McIntyre writes books about, you know, what would a reformed university curriculum look like. So we all find ourselves in situations where we, we have to recognize, okay, how are the, uh, uh, social circumstances that I find myself in, how are they incentivizing certain kinds of behavior uh, that maybe I don't want to cooperate with, and how much power do I have to resist that? And that's a, that's a, a difficult thing to discern for a lot of people. Um, the, the manager character type is bad, but that doesn't mean there shouldn't be people who have authority over other people in a large firm. It just means that if you, if you find yourself with the title of manager, you're gonna have to work extra hard not to be a bureaucrat, a, 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 have the bureaucratic mentality in, in your exercise of that authority. Yes, sir. Um,
4: I had a question about like the role of the divine. Yeah. Um, so if I, if I may, like, what I got of your talk, and you will probably show how it's wrong, and that will help me clarify what was actually being argued. Um, so, it seemed like the role of the divine as it relates to the ethics, it provides, uh, like, a framework, it makes it intelligent. Um, I wrote down cohesion, I don't know why, or, like, glue, and it had to do with this sumum bonum, the, the good, yeah. um, that... Would be maybe transcendent or universal besides like this these contingent goods that we're dealing with right now um so the divine seems like a a good candidate for that um whatever conception that may be just because it's transcendent of our contingencies right now um so rather than being god could we try to distinguish of something transcendent um not in a outsider space and time, still operating within space and time, but transcendent in regards to like our time. So for example, like a, like a Burkean ethic that relied on the past, us being benefited from it, us being trustees now for the present in anticipation for the future posterity. And so it's transcendent in a way that it escapes our time, but still dealing with just like the here and, well, not the here and now, the, uh, World
1: is not postulating the development of Yeah, I mean I I think in a way, um, and I want to qualify that. Um right. So part of part of my argument that um moral theorizing um inevitably connects us to th- a theological theorizing, mm-hmm. right? Um is is that it leads it leads beyond you know the here and now to something larger and you know in various ways right so if if, if you're wondering about you know the this action is ordered towards uh, some good but that good is ordered towards some other good it leads to the summa bonum that was the point in one of the last quotations from McIntyre. Mm-hmm. if you're if you're thinking about how um, it, it feels like certain kinds of actions might come under a, a moral law right. You wonder about the source of that law, the the, the divine intelligence that, of the lawgiver, um, but yeah, even even before those explicit sort of references to recognizably theological understandings, right? I guess you could say to start thinking of your life as having a narrative unity and intelligibility of, uh, that gives meaning to your actions, right? You have to think of yourself as part of a larger whole. And I can imagine someone arguing, "Yeah, the, that larger hole is my tradition, however one conceives of that tradition." Right? Um, it's. I think it's important, though. Part of After Virtue that I didn't summarize. The book is is literally unsummarizable. It's just such. There's so many fractal layers to the book. So, some of you who, who have read it might have favorite parts that I didn't even mention. Right. Um, part of the book involves a. a Developing a theory of tradition in which McIntyre compares Burke 's idea of tradition with newman 's idea of tradition john Henry newman and he doesn't like Burke 's idea of tradition because in his view, Burke thinks of a tradition as something that has to be solid and preserved and has to be like so so change and conflict are um antithetical to a Burkean concept of tradition. This is in McIntyre's analysis, and maybe it's not fair to Burke, but he uses Burke this way to say there's one view of tradition that there's there's like something solid that we have to preserve and inherit, and if there's too much conflict and too much change, then it's, it's falling apart. And what he likes about Newman's idea of tradition is that it's more organic and alive. For Newman, a, a tradition is something that's constantly changing, and the stronger the tradition, the more it's capable of receiving and responding to uh, new things. And so uh, for Newman, a tradition is inherently something that that um, involves a kind of rational dialectic. There's, there is thinking going on in a living tradition. And there's a line in, in After Virtue that once, for, once a tradition becomes Burkean, it's already dead. And if, if, a tra- if a tradition has the kind of qualities that Burke seems to value, and again, maybe this isn't really fair to Burke, but if a tradition has those qualities, then it it's lost that vital that, that vital force. So um, this is also something that I haven't really emphasized quite so much, although it is in the in the idea that, that you know um, a, a university structure should involve more disputation. McIntyre really thinks that um, part of living a good life is living in a situation in which you are capable of engaging in constructive conflict. Like, he, he does, he's not seeking unanimity. He's not seeking, let's all get on the same page. Let's all, or, let's all bow our knee to the same. No, he's thinking, let's all live our lives so that we can get it all out in the open and like really disagree with each other and duke it out and fight it out. And he has a great, he has a great um, essay about how um, Thomas Aquinas is a model of this. We, we tend to think of Aquinas because he's so authoritative in the Catholic tradition as this like symbol of orthodoxy and tradition but Thomas Aquinas was really radical he was really controversial um, he and people who followed him got into trouble he was often misunderstood he was he was drawing things from dangerous sources right he was stirring the pot and that's what McIntyre thinks is is crucial to um, a, a vital tradition. And he thinks that anything that's truly capable of that will eventually not be able to escape the ultimate theological horizon. And so if you if you've set out to say, well, I have meaning and 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 it's my atheist meaning and I'm I'm not even going to consider that God exists because I have, you know, I'm going to I'm going to stand up for my country or my tradition. And McIntyre would think that's inevitably going to uh, fail to satisfy, and fail to be able to engage with other people who might actually be interested in, in hearing from you. Thank you, Yes, sir. Do we okay. have time for more? Yeah, yeah, go for it. I'm willing to stay as long as people want. I know I already started like 25 minutes late, but so you guys have been incredibly patient. Did
4: you see more
1: the gift of disillusionment? How is <laughs> that The gift of disillusionment, that was my line, huh? Um, I mean, it's funny, our culture, however much we were making fun of social media before, our, our culture actually has some pretty common, like, words and memes about this, right? Like, it's better to be self-aware than to be an NPC. It's better to, you know, be red-pilled than to be, you know, like, are, it. If it, it's better to suffer Having had the scales fall from your eyes and see things as they really are, than to be comfortably insulated in ignorance and um, and not realize that that there's more to life. Um, that's part of what I mean—that the gift of of disillusionment, right? Um, but you know, I mean, I, I'm not trying to link it to like just pop culture uh, references either. I mean, I think this is a big part of. Um, maturity and growing up. Um, There's something beautiful about the innocence of childhood, and it should be protected as long as it can, but there's also something very important about um, realizing that there there might be more to life than what you took for granted from the beginning, and that, that, that part of being an adult is being open to learning more and not simply thinking you got it all figured out. Um, does that help? Did, sure. I mean, I, I don't know what led to your question or why, why that was a... Have you been disillusioned yet?
4: Um, <laughs>
1: Someone take him outside <laughs> and <disillusion>. him. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean there's ignorance and there's ignorance. Think of think of what Socrates did walking around Athens. He he was he was sharing the gift of disillusionment, right? People thought they knew stuff, and then Socrates asked them questions, and they realized through his questioning, well some of them realized, some of them some of them didn't have the fortitude to face the fact that they didn't know what they thought they knew. Right? Um, and Socrates questions were in, in a sense, a test of character, right? So some people, when confronted with Socrates and realized when they realized that they couldn't answer his questions, um, received the, the gift of self-awareness in ignorance as a gift and thought, this is, this is really refreshing. I I, I want to learn more from you now. I thought I knew now I don't, I'm wiser now that I realized I didn't know when I thought I did. And so I want to follow you, Socrates and other people, um, you know they didn't have that those qualities of character they didn't have those virtues and so they were threatened by that they they felt bad and blamed socrates for causing them to feel bad and they thought the best thing to do was to kill him rather than to face their own ignorance okay. so i think i think this is this goes way back in it's it's not just you know macintyre trying to unmask the the problems of modernity but this is what a good philosopher does is Make you aware that things you thought you knew to be the case might might be not just a little bit different, but radically otherwise, and that you're going to have to work very hard to put the world back in order. I think that's a gift. I find it thrilling. Yeah. Well, when I was hearing your uh, lecture, I was uh, just trying to. Have a, I, I know you mentioned the divine
3: and uh, virtue ethics. The, that, that I wasn't too sure of is virtue ethics presumes God, or does virtue ethics lead me to God?
1: Yeah, I mean that question. that is a great question and one which I tried to exclude from addressing because it's such a big question, right? But I think it can sometimes work either way. So um, my, my my thesis is is the. Uh, the more general one the the two ways of thinking are connected right, and that they can inform each other um i don't th- i don 't think either one of them has to be first in that order right um, I mean I think some people uh, believe in God and then they start to wonder what what does that mean for how I should live my life right how how does God want me to live can can that help me I mean you could believe that but also believe that it 's totally unhelpful right so there 's a god but I don't know how to relate to him, and, right? But, but, but even then, the theological question, right, is leading to and being drawn on to inform the moral questions about how one should live one's life. But I think very often it works the other way too. People, they either are atheists or the question of God has never been live to them. That describes me actually more than um, more than genuine atheism. I, I, I think I was. Fairly agnostic until my late teens. Um, It just didn't. I just wasn't interested in the question. What got me interested in the question was something like what I'm imagining Jack describing was actually confronting moral issues in my own life, and then thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to have to figure out how to order my life or how to make better decisions, then oh, all of a sudden I'm conceiving of my life in in light of something like so. What's it ordered towards, or what what would what would structure it? So. So moral questions can raise theological questions just as much as theological questions can raise moral questions, I think. Um, And I I think that's how it should be.
2: Yeah. Given the modern scientific positivism, um, how does the concept of the soul fit into this, Uh, especially with the rampant materialism that seems to have invaded all all of the social science?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I don't. I didn't use that word in my talk. That I soul. Um, I think it appears sometimes in the Nicomachean Ethics, but you can actually go pretty far without talking about the soul in the Nicomachean Ethics. I mean, soul soul is a funny word, and it's taken on partly because of positivism. It's taken on the, the connotation that it's some like uh, spooky, invisible religious entity that that science wouldn't be able to you know, speak about, except maybe to say that no such thing exists. In Greek philosophy, um, that's not what a soul was. And the way that the Greeks were, used the word soul, it was totally uncontroversial that souls exist. Um, the soul is the principle of life. So if there are living things, there are souls. That's just tautologically true. Nobody, Nobody in ancient Greece argued over whether there were souls. The argument was, what kind of thing is a soul, right? Um, and that's reflected in, in uh, Plato's Phaedo, the dialogue about the end of his life, right? His friends come and they want to be consoled because Socrates is about to die. They want to know that it's possible that his, his, he could have life after death. So, so they talk about what kind of thing is the soul? Is it the kind of thing that could survive after death? And they, they run through different theories, right? Um, including materialistic theories that the soul is just uh, the, the activity of the body, Um, Simeon's harmony argument um, or, or other theories, right? Um, So, so I guess my desire would be to return to a Greek way of talking and, and maybe soul isn't the right word for it because it's, it's been, it just, it's developed a different meaning in our culture, but, but we need to have a word so that we can actually talk again and have a conversation about what is that? which makes the difference between a living body and a dead body, right? When someone says, I don't believe that there's such a thing as a soul, you know, I want to ask them, okay, well, what do you call the thing that, that the person had before the person was a corpse? Like, let's, can we talk about that then? Um, and I don't think positivism uh, prevents us from having that conversation. I mean, positivism will limit the number of theories about what the soul is that someone's willing to entertain, right? But the positivist could have, you could have a positivist entertaining Simeus's theory that the soul is the harmony of the parts of the body, right? Um, and so fine, so like, so, so then you're having a conversation with the positivist about whether that's, a, that's an adequate account of the soul. Um, does that...
2: Yeah, so that would be... The soul as kind of a form of the body, like a uniting principle?
1: Well, so that is one theory of what kind of thing is the soul, right? So in in the Greek debate, again, they never debated whether there are souls, right? They divided what kind of thing is a soul. In that debate, um Aristotle's answer is that the soul is the substantial form of the organized body potentially having life. Now, that's a mouthful, and it's a mouthful because you can only even understand what he's saying after you've followed him through the development of his physics. So you have to have a full-blown theory of natural things in general, and you have to know what what a substantial form is and and what substantial forms do outside of living things, Right? Before you could apply that concept as an explanatory notion in, explain, in, in accounting for the nature of the soul, um.
2: and so uh, like just a brief thought of that, my understanding was with, with Aristotle was that there was like the, the form of like a species, like so humans' form was uh, a sort of soul, but it individual forms didn't necessarily take the form of a, or the, the not, were uh, more not like the form of,
0: a, of an individual body? Have I got that wrong?
1: Well, so in general, for any natural thing, it, it is what it is because of its substantial form.
4: Right.
1: Which is to say, the substantial form of, let's say, carbon. Take something totally uncontroversial and not alive, right? The substantial form of carbon um, makes it to be carbon. That is, makes it makes it to be that kind of thing and not something else. And also makes it to be, right? So that if if, if there were no substantial form of carbon, there would be no carbon. And, and makes it to be uh, to push this even further it makes it to be unified as that carbon um, so it makes it to it makes it to exist and it makes it to be the kind of thing it is so carbon is a species of element right? um, every living thing seems to fall under a species, right. So what makes that living thing to exist is also what makes that living thing to exist as the kind of thing that it is, right? So the oak tree, I'll pretend that there's an oak tree out there, right? The oak tree has a soul. That's totally uncontroversial in the Greek. I'm I'm not talking about like spooky, like this isn't, you know, fairy tales. This is just biology if you're Greek. The oak tree has a soul. The the soul of the oak tree is what makes it to be alive. And if you're Aristotle, the soul of the oak tree is its substantial form, making it to be that one tree, which is an oak tree, so giving it its species. So if there's another oak tree next to it, right, they are of the same species, right? But they're different trees because one can die while the other lives, right? So there's two souls, so there's two substantial forms actualizing the two oak trees. But we can say that the oak trees are the same in species because the substantial forms, uh, you know, here it's hard to translate it into that other term. They're communicating the same structure, right? Why is this carbon and that carbon? Well, because they both have this molecular structure. Why is that an oak tree and that an oak tree? Well, because their substantial form is organizing it to be that kind of living thing and not an elm tree. So two human beings are of the same species. We're both human beings. But your soul's over there and my soul's over here. And we all know that we don't have the same soul because otherwise we would all be born and die together. right? So we're, the, there's different individual souls, but one common human nature insofar as the nature is, is the, the common element or structure that each of our individual souls is communicating But to take this a step further, because I don't know what's motivating your question, but I love this stuff, right? This is why there can be um, multiple human souls of the same species, right? But no two angels can have the same species because an angel doesn't have anything besides its living principle, its substantial form. The angel is the substantial form. And so if there's one angel over here and there's another angel over here, you have two different substantial forms, they have different structures. One, this, this is structuring the Michael archangel, and this is structuring the Raphael angel. right? If they were the same species, they'd be the same angel. Right? Um, sorry, that, that got off into spooky territory. Right? But you can see how if you, if you do physics the way the Greeks do, it actually becomes easier to talk about metaphysics. You actually have a language that positivists don't have for talking about what would it mean for something to be an immaterial being, and so not detectable by empirical investigation, and what would it mean for something to be divine, a, a, a source of causality that itself is not subject to being you know, dominated or manipulated by, by other, other things or people. I think I saw another hand a minute ago. Yeah. Yeah, so as I understand it, McIntyre and whose
3: justice and which rationality, like, became more favorable towards using metaphysics to support virtue ethics. Yeah. Um, So I guess I'm kind of wondering why he did that, and also, like, what your view on metaphysical justifications for, like, the natural law is, because... I mean, I always, you know, you see, I mean, basically just the function argument that, like, we are in, say, Phaser, um, where you deposit yeah. teleological substances, especially living things are teleological, and obviously this is used in support of, like, Catholic ethics, especially, you know, when it gets into the controversial topics in Catholic ethics. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I want these arguments to work when I'm making them, and like, they make sense to me intuitively. Yeah. But I always feel like when I'm articulating them to people that they feel a little weak. So I guess I'm wondering, like, whether you think that they're helpful
1: and or. or so I'll, I'll address the original question first, but I want to address what you said at the very end because I think it's really, really useful, right? And this this actually reveals something important that I think McIntyre is trying to help us understand. Um, the, the thing that you said that is useful is that, like, so you've heard these arguments about teleology or maybe forms or whatever, and you read your Ed Phaser and then you want to like pull out the Ed Phaser argument
3: yeah. and
1: and beat up your positivist friends <laughs> with it, right? Yeah, exactly.
3: And of course, that
1: doesn't work, yeah. right? Um, because um, to be persuaded of the argument, right? your opponent would have to come to share the concepts that the argument is framed in, which means that you would have to do something to help them acquire those concepts. Now, maybe helping them to acquire them, part of helping them to acquire them, would be to show how the concepts play a role in a certain kind of argument. So maybe making arguments would indirectly be a means of helping them to acquire the concepts. But, but the making of the argument isn't about, like, I'm going to force you to this conclusion. The making of the argument is then I'm going to show you how my mind works so you can see how I'm using these concepts, right? Sort of what I was doing before with the Greek idea of the soul, right? I, I hope I just persuaded anybody who doubted that, that souls exist, right? You all, But maybe some people in the room didn't have that concept before.
2: Right?
1: I, didn't, I didn't make an argument that souls exist. I did, I did something that I hoped would help people acquire a new concept so that they could then formulate for themselves the question, do those things exist? And they could say yes to it. Okay. Um, so, so I mean, this is a danger. I face this when I'm talking to seminarians because they want to do philosophy as apologetics. They want to know the arguments that they can use to force people to come over to their side. And, um, and that, that's, that's a different version of like you want to use the, the phaser teleology chapter to get the whatever to change his mind, um, but that's not that's not philosophy, right? Philosophy is entering into a conversation and asking questions and what do you mean by this? And what well, it seems to me that the way you're talking about this might be missing something. What if I ask you about this? And um, I think that's what McIntyre. That's that is the crucial point of McIntyre. Trying to describe teleology in after virtue without doing metaphysics, okay. people have made a lot of this line in metaphysics in, in in after virtue where he says that we have to um, we have to have virtue without Aristotle's metaphysical biology. And I think part of MacIntyre kind of re- regrets and repudiated that line. And you're right in in whose justice and which rationality he's more friendly to metaphysics. Uh, partly he's learned more metaphysics just in those few years. He's, he's He's converted to Catholicism and embraced his identity as a Thomist. He wasn't quite a Thomist when he wrote After Virtue. But in retrospect, you can see the writing was on the wall, right? Um, So he's he's more willing to accept those terms, but partly he he probably subjected himself to learning how to use these concepts and and better appreciating how they work. But the, the, the... Arguments of after virtue illustrate how you can act, you can help someone acquire functional or teleological concepts without doing metaphysics or using the word metaphysics or talking about form and matter or anything like that. You can just say, well, um, doesn't it seem like if you watch people doing this kind of thing, they must be thinking of themselves as having an orientation towards a goal or they must be thinking of themselves as playing a certain kind of role. Right? if they didn't think of themselves as playing that role that their, their behavior would no longer be intelligible right? um, and that's, that's why I said it was, it, was, it was a kind of passing line but in the lecture I said that McIntyre by talking about the narrative unity of life he's, he's actually getting at what Thomists like Ed Faber would call action theory but he doesn't call it action theory um, it's more like the literary analysis of a character um, how, how do we make sense of, of, a, of another human being's behavior, and especially how do we make sense of our own behavior, if we're not just a series of unrelated episodes, right, you wake up and just randomly do stuff today, but if, 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 if what you do today is somehow related to what you did yesterday and what you project yourself doing tomorrow and the other people that you've done things with over the course of your lifetime, then all of a sudden, you're thinking teleologically. Um so so i think I think what McIntyre both advocates and illustrates is that the real hard work of philosophy is not finding the uh, the definitive argument that will force people to your conclusion from your premises, but helping people to see the world in a new way, which is to say giving them the concepts within which to frame. Things that they wouldn't have imagined without those concepts.
3: Okay, that that definitely makes sense. And then you also said that modernity like deprives people of that narrative and unity. I was also wondering if you could like articulate what you meant. But I mean, I can kind of imagine it like intuitively because I was thinking about like MacIntyre's argument seems to be suggesting. Uh, A remembering of man as like a political animal, and because I was thinking, like, Locke or you know, some of the other moderns would see would kind of abstract man from his social context, but I would think that, like, for Aristotle and Aquinas to abstract man from a social context would precisely be unnatural, so that wouldn't be a state of nature to begin with, Um, and so like. I was thinking that that is that does somewhat describe modernity because, like, people don't tend to have social roles that are very set, and maybe a lot of times because you have like so many options before you, you can do whatever you want. Um, but yeah, I guess I was wondering like, why do you not have that like historical narrative or that community tradition in
1: yeah, um, I, I don't think there's any one one thing um, to point to, and McIntyre draws on reading from a lot of theorists from a lot of different disciplines, actually, to um, elicit this sense. Um, but for economic factors, for political factors... For um, even like factors of architecture and urban planning, factors of uh, of the 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 design of a university curriculum. I mean, it it sort of depends on what 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 role you're trying to play in life. But you're playing multiple roles, and very often those roles themselves are designed so as not to necessarily connect with the other roles that you have. Um, I mean, just think about is is. I think this is a common experience of high school and of college, that there's nothing connecting your classes. That each class is its own thing. So like in one class, you have to play the role of the student in this class. In another class, you play the role of the student in this class. And it, it almost becomes this weird like juggling game. Like, OK, I'm sitting here. I have to play the game of guess what's in my professor's head. What do I have to do to get an A? And then I'm next period. I'll go to this other class, and I will have to play the, game. and and both the activities and the content, the subject matter, they don't seem to connect. If if you find connection between them, right? If if you can if you can carry some ideas from reading Plato's Republic to your economics class, right? That's all on you, and it, like it, it's it, it requires a kind of uncommon extra exertion of intellectual effort because you don't have to do that. Right, the way the classes are designed. and I'm just I'm using this as just one example of um, modern fragmentation. Um, whereas, you know, what if a university curriculum were designed so that it wasn't just like a nice idea, but it was actually encoded in the activities and structures uh, that that embodied the curriculum, that you were actually doing one thing college and that when you were studying economics you were aware of that as part of the bigger thing you were engaged in and and you 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 could see and you knew that you were with other people who saw that that when they were doing that thing in with economics it it had a connection to that thing in you know in chemistry class or in your philosophy class that was making it all part of one thing and I, I think the, the, the common experience of, and, and we're talking mainly about sort of uh, uh, middle class Western life too, especially, right? But the, the, the main experience of people is that their lives, even as adults, remain kind of bifurcated and fragmented. Right? You go to work and you're concerned about these things from nine to five, right? And even at work, your mind is bifurcated between like what you actually think is worth doing versus what you have to report to your manager and then you go home and there's no connection between that and um, home or family life entertainment um, I mean and and I mentioned like architecture and how we design physical spaces like just look at having maybe this is on my mind because I have all the hellish traffic in Atlanta but like (laughs) look at how look at how people are willing to live it's crazy You know, they have a, there's a residential area over here and, and to do anything, like you have to get in a car and drive to a, you know, a place where you can work over here. But then after you have money from working, you have to drive to a place where you can spend your money. So there's like a shopping area over here. And then because you've spent all day in your car before you go home, you'll over here and stop at the gym. And then like. And that's normal. That's like that's life for a lot of people. Um, and I'm not trying to romanticize, you know, feudal peasant farmer life, but there's something there is something naturally integrated about pre-industrial forms of life. And this is one of the things why this is why McIntyre is actually still a Marxist in a way, right? He's never fully repudiated. The 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 part of Marx that finds something deeply problematic about the way industrialism has reorganized human life. The scale and, uh, and structures that, ha- that have been enabled uh, have made people not feel like they are parts of communities anymore. Um, and literally, our understanding of politics has changed. Right? Politics gets its name from the polis. How big was a polis in ancient Greece? It's like a town. It's like a basic, I mean, probably University of Georgia's bigger than the polis in ancient
2: Greece. <laughs>